0: And welcome to Perfecting the Practice, the podcast for behavioral health providers and administrators on how practice management makes perfect. This podcast is brought to you by Therapy Brands, a collection of the best of the best behavioral health practice management, telehealth, and data collection tools. Our team is here to help you expand the reach and impact of your practice. My name is Sage, and I'm a member of the Therapy Brands team. I have a background in mental health administration, having previously worked as a practice manager and insurance biller before joining therapy brands. I've seen firsthand the ways in which the right techniques and tools can make all the difference when it comes to running a successful practice. In today's episode, we're talking about how compliance plays a role in healthcare management. Every industry is regulated for the safety of consumers and professionals. And healthcare is an industry for which regulatory compliance is of the utmost importance. HIPAA, FERPA, and other levels of protection are put into place so that administrators, providers, and patients feel confident participating in the process of giving and receiving care. Today, we have with us compliance expert, Dr. Jessica Kasirski, with whom we'll go over the most important aspects of compliance in the healthcare industry and how organizations can make sure they're using best practices. Can you please tell us who you are and what your current role is in the world of healthcare compliance? Hi, Sage.
1: Thank you for having me on. I'm Dr. Jessica Kazerski. I'm the Chief Medical Officer and Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at Therapy Brands. I'm responsible for the patient safety of our brands, regulatory reporting, and healthcare compliance.
0: And what was your journey into the healthcare landscape?
1: You know, my father and sister are both physicians and my mother is a psychotherapist. So you could say that healthcare you know, runs in my family. Oh, wow. My background is in emergency medicine. I trained and practiced in the South Bronx and worked in New York for 20 years. And then about 15 years ago, I moved into the electronic health record world when I sort of realized the utility and the efficiency that comes from EHRs. I realized that using EHRs, we can, in just a matter of minutes, run a report that will tell us how many of our patients are due or even overdue for important studies, like labs, mammograms, colonoscopies, and so on. And since we're able to reach out and notify those patients, we can provide better preventative medicine and literally save lives. That's just not possible anywhere close to the same degree in the paper world. And since making this career shift, I've worked on EHR development, analysis, workflows, and implementations. And these days, my focus is really on the complicated regulatory space where we can decrease the burden that has been required and associated with the EHR providers, thus improving the quality of their working lives.
0: Wow, that's so fascinating that you went from saving lives in a, in a really tangible way in like a physical space of, of treatment and, and emergency care to saving lives on a broader scale through your influence in the software space. What would you say? I mean, that's really striking me. I, I didn't know that that was your background. That's so cool. What would you say was like the biggest takeaway for you moving from that like more physical and emergent space of working in emergency care to the more nebulous space of the software world? I'm just curious.
1: So it was a real learning curve for me, obviously, moving into the software space. And I do miss the interaction with patients, but I feel like I can reach and impact so much more in the software space. So um, I really have enjoyed my time working in software.
0: Yeah, that's something that I feel like a lot of the people that we work with here at Therapy Brands really try to keep as kind of a core philosophy and, and something we all remind each other of whenever there's a hard moment or someone needs a little motivation. Is that, you know, the cascade of influence that these software companies have on the real world effects of people's lives and their care is so exponential. It's a part of what motivates me every day, for sure. for me the relationship between healthcare compliance, consumer trust, and industry safety that you've experienced and seen in your career?
1: Sure. You know, they're all very intimately intertwined. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for me, it started in 1999. There was a groundbreaking study that was released by the Institute of Medicine or the IOM. And it's called To Air is Human, Building a Safer Health System. The media got a hold of this study and ran with it, citing the sheer numbers of medical errors that they talked about. But that somewhat missed the point of the study. The point of the report was that we cannot address the overall quality of care without first addressing a key component of quality, which is, of course, patient safety. Mm-hmm. And the committee emphasized that the safety of healthcare is a property of a system of care, not relying solely on the provider, but it's the system of care, whether that's a hospital or a primary care clinic or a nursing home, a retail pharmacy or or home care, that system of care needs to ensure that well-designed processes of care are in place, both to prevent and to quickly recover from errors so that patients are not harmed. And the IOM urged healthcare organizations to create an environment in which safety becomes top priority. And the report stressed the need for leadership by clinicians and executives and for accountability for patient safety by boards of trustees. So, this was really the beginning and the first aim, so to speak, of the quadruple aim. And so, that first aim is improved patient outcomes. And by doing this, we improve trust. The ultimate goal, of course, is simply to improve the overall quality of healthcare. And better quality of care will translate into fewer medical errors, thereby increasing consumer confidence in their healthcare providers and reducing medical malpractice suits. So I I believe this in turn will increase the confidence of healthcare providers, possibly lessen the need to practice what we've all done in the past, which is defensive medicine, and increasing efficiency and reducing the number of unnecessary tests and or procedures that are ordered. Do you think that, at least in your time at
0: therapy brands and perhaps with other EHR spaces before that you've seen kind of like a a mutual relationship between the needs of the compliance space and then the, the capabilities of the software and capabilities rising to meet the needs and the needs kind of shifting to meet the capabilities. Is that something that you've seen or is it really more that the compliance Fully just dictates what the software will provide.
1: I think it goes both ways. I think certainly with the advent of the meaningful use program in beginning in really 2010, that really influenced the way the healthcare information technology industry had to move quickly to meet those standards. But it works the other way as well. I think our capabilities do influence regulations and compliance requirements as well. For instance, in the space of interoperability, which is the ability to exchange patient data between two different systems, be it between a hospital and a provider or two providers or a payer, that interoperability, which is based on application programming interfaces or APIs, which is a software intermediary that allows two applications to talk to each other, that combined with The fast healthcare interoperability resources, also known as the FHIR standards. The FHIR is a set of standards for exchanging sensitive healthcare information electronically using web standards and modern information exchange models. And this has changed how we exchange patient data. And these standards have been extended to create a full interoperability solution for the healthcare industry. So as patients move in the healthcare ecosystem, their health records must be available in a structured format that is understandable and exchangeable. And that allows things like automated clinical decision support, like alerts for age or disease-based screenings or order sets and and other machine-based processing, population health solutions. All of this requires standardization. Then we have the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, they have regulations now that include policies which encourage or even require providers and payers to implement APIs to use fire standards to improve the electronic exchange of healthcare data. So that sharing of information with patients or exchanging information between a payer and a provider, APIs can be used by websites, mobile apps, EHRs or practice management systems to you know, enable a more seamless and standardized method of exchanging information. So that's a case where I think this, capability really impacted the regulation. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. It seems like there is kind of a push and pull between kind of the reactiveness from both sides to each other. I'm curious kind of on that same vein, what reactions you've seen in the time of COVID-19 there have been in the compliance space and then in the software space because of the compliance needs shifting with COVID?
1: There are uh, a significant number of Regulatory changes or pauses, I might say. So there were HIPAA pauses. Because of the National Emergency Declaration, we've seen billing changes for telemedicine. We've seen some HIPAA changes for telemedicine. We've seen the ability to reach across state lines to see patients in other places, regardless of their location or where the provider is licensed. So we've, you know, we've seen some significant changes and some opening of restrictions. It remains to be seen whether or not they will be made permanent. Some of them may, some of them won't, but it has been interesting to see this like push forward in especially in the telemedicine area because of COVID.
0: Important things to keep in mind about healthcare compliance from the stance of a provider or administrator who's listening to this? What would you tell them?
1: I would say that we, the providers, also the electronic health records and practice management systems and payers, all of us, we are the custodians or the guardians of our customers and their patients' data. It's the most important thing we can do. Keep the data safe. Keep the data safe and do everything we can to keep personal health information secure.
0: Absolutely. I think that that is sometimes the force that's missed for the trees is that ultimately in the end here, what we're really trying to do is absolutely under all circumstances provide a safe environment for care to be given and received and and so that the patients feel comfortable and confident in what we're giving. And you're right, it's a collaborative effort on the part of the EHR provider and the healthcare providers and the administrators and then everyone else, the payers, There's so many moving parts to keeping people safe. And it it seems to me that every participant has to have an equal level of prioritization on compliance in order for it to really work.
1: agree, yeah.
0: What would you say are the most common myths and misconceptions
1: about healthcare compliance? So I hear all the time, my EHR is secure, so I'm protecting my patients or Mm -hmm. my clients' data. But security is really, you know, a three-legged stool You have technical safeguards, physical safeguards, and administrative safeguards, each being a leg. An accurate and thorough assessment of potential risks and vulnerabilities of the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of electronic protected health information held by the organization requires this. And you can tell I say those things a lot, the potential risk and vulnerabilities to confidentiality, integrity, and availability of EPHI. I mean, this is like the mantra, right? There's these three legs to it. And I often hear people think, oh, my EHR is secure, I'm done. And that's just not the case. So certainly technical security is essential. Encryption of data at rest, regularly changing passwords, backing up your data at regular intervals, checking your backups. All of this is important. Your EHR certainly must be secure. So is the administrative and physical part of security. So from an administrative safeguard standpoint, we need to be training our staff on HIPAA, also FERPA potentially, if it's applicable, the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act. This has to happen every year. We need, also need policies in place and procedures in place. You need an org chart specifying privacy and security officers. This is for every provider practice, every therapist, every therapist, every clinic, every hospital. And then from the physical standpoint we of course want our servers to be safe to have locks on doors and alarm systems but then ask where are the keys to your server room if you have one are they in an unlocked office and an unlocked drawer with a set of keys clearly marked server yeah. <laughs> if you if you use a third party what are their security policies so these are the kind of questions we need to be asking so again it's not just the EHR that has to be secure it's all of these pieces that must be Completed at a minimum on a yearly basis, but also if there's any change to your physical location or if you have any major IT updates, all of that should be a part of your yearly security risk analysis.
0: Being someone who previously filled an administrative role in the psychiatric space, I saw time and time again how much, how much resistance there was to HIPAA training in a really like serious and and like really cared about manner because it let's be honest, it's not the most exciting part of anyone's job is is doing those kind of trainings and and keeping up on security. But in some ways, it is like the most important part. And as someone who started out doing kind of like just general administrative stuff in the psychiatric clinic space and moving up to a, a space where I was leading more of those roles, I really felt like the HIPAA training aspect, at least in the clinics I worked for, was a total afterthought. And I think that's probably more common than we'd like to admit that because it's not very exciting and it's something that can kind of be easily overlooked or pushed off to someone else to take care of, that it becomes such an afterthought. And then it's only when something really goes haywire or there is a big breach that we really stop and think about the ways that that could have gone better. So I think like proactivity, I imagine, is a big part of that is kind of biting the bullet. And
1: it doesn't have to be not interesting. I mean, it can be... I'm smiling, as you say, it's, you know, in not interesting, um, but it, it can be interesting. I mean, there's plenty of examples and stories to use that can spark people's interest and, and make them sit up and take notice because they could say, oh, that sounds like something we do, you know?
0: That is a great point. And that kind of carries me into my next question, which is, what has surprised you most as you've moved through the healthcare compliance space over the years? Maybe you have some of those anecdotes that would make people sit up and listen.
1: You've answered my question. And what surprised me most is how poorly we train mm. clinicians in compliance. Yeah. You know, the HIPAA regulatory guidelines, the additional requirements found within the Tech Act, the new COVID-related enforcement discretions related to telehealth and public health, the alignment of 42 CFR Part 2 regulations with HIPAA, the Cybersecurity Safe Harbor Provision, all of this is related to HIPAA and they're all new. So with all of these moving parts to HIPAA, it behooves both covered entities and business associates to regularly educate to ensure operations are compliant. So it's really something that's just been surprising to me. I mean, you know, we didn't learn it in medical school. We didn't learn it in residency. You know, you're required to take a yearly HIPAA training, as you said, that is not interesting. We need to be doing a better job so people are more, become stakeholders in this and understand why they need to become stakeholders and get buy in. So, really involving the clinician in this, you know, more intimately would really improve our compliance.
0: Do you have any particular kind of HIPAA breach horror stories that at least you've heard that kind of Really dialed in for you how important it was. So many, I can't So many. Like, I, <laughs> I mean, I literally, I literally, I <laughs> literally
1: did walk into an unmarked, an unlocked office, opened an unlocked desk drawer, pulled out a set of keys, clearly marked server, hmm. and walked across the hall to the server room, which is, you know, everybody knew the keys were there. But more importantly, are things like some a nefarious actor going in and doing something wrong with the database, or one time there was a jail that I visited that was you know doing backups as they should be, but they realized that they were backing up the same day over and over again for a month. Oh no. And didn't know it. Yeah. So like there's all kinds of stories from all different, there's the administrative, the physical location, the IT. There's just a ton of stories or... The dentist who got fined because they wrote HIV on the outside of the paper chart on a patient, yeah. you know, for for all to see that. Actually, if you go to the CMS, the OCR website, you can see all the lists of stories. Do they have
0: they have a what not to do section?
1: Essentially, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the wall of shame, it's called. And you can see everybody listed on it.
0: That sounds like an interesting thing to go do. If I were still working in healthcare administration and I was sitting at my desk waiting for, you know, the next client to come in the door, that's exactly how I would spend my time is reading over those. Because honestly, a lot of the time, that is how we become really aware and literate in this sense is is just by hearing anecdotal evidence of what happens if you don't have that kind of diligence. I think it goes a long way, just kind of passing along those stories and and making sure that we're, we're talking about the interesting parts and not just the really dull parts and all that. All right. <laughs> providers and healthcare administrators to really remember as they walk away from this interview?
1: Conduct a yearly risk analysis, please. (laughs) That's it. Security risk analysis every year at minimum, please. No, that that would be it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Dr. K. It's
0: been so great speaking with you. I know that Therapy Brands really benefits from having all of your knowledge on things that are so complicated and there's so many layers to how this all works and how it all comes together in the software space and then how we present it to providers and then how they use it. And I'm so grateful that you are able to give our team so much insight into this. And I think that the people listening will be grateful as well.
1: Thank you so much, Sage. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for listening today. I wish you all the best in your practice management. My name is Sage, and you've been listening to Perfecting the Practice, the podcast for behavioral health providers and administrators on how practice management makes perfect. If you're enjoying this season of Perfecting the Practice, please consider subscribing or maybe even leaving a review. It helps other listeners like you find us. Thanks again, and bye for now.